Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to all of those who are joining us online and on site. This is week two of Pastor 411. Mm-hmm. Glad to be here. Very glad to be here. You are? Good. Yeah. Are you glad to be here? I am glad to be here. Yes. <laughs> good. Are you all glad to be here? Fantastic. Woo! There we all go. Right. Pass the buck. That's a good one, start. Question one, taken care of. Yeah. All right. Um, well, yeah, this is our, our series, Pastor 411. We've had a lot of interest, a lot of good questions coming in, not all of which we'll be able to tackle today. No, there is more questions that we can cover, but we're going to do our best to cover what we can. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's just jump in right away. First topic. Sure. All right. Yeah, there were some quick ones, I think, that we can cover right off the bat here. Yep. That'll do some housekeeping and maybe help people know us a little better. I think so. As well. All right. Let's take care of some business. Question one, Marvel or DC? That's easy. Marvel. Especially when it comes to movies. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. How about you, Zach? Yeah. Marvel for sure. Marvel for sure. Julie hadn't seen a lot of the Marvel movies, and so we sat down and watched them, and let's just say... all of them? All of them. That must have taken a little while. Yeah, so we looked it up, right, and it takes 50 hours, 5-0, to watch. We didn't watch it all at once. That's a lot of popcorn. That's a lot of popcorn. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, next question. Do angels play hockey? Obviously, yes. Angels play hockey. It's different, though, because there's no need for referees because there's, like, no penalties that ever take place. And they never cheer for the flames, right? There's just, well, th- think about it. There's just something wrong with angels cheering for flames, right? So, it just, yeah. So similar. Yeah. But different, yeah. Okay. Um, all right, another question. And I'm not sure who this was intended for. I don't know either. Okay, yeah. but the question was, how do you do your hair? How do you do your hair? So, it starts with good genes. I think I'll always have a full head of hair. Mm-hmm. And, then, uh, and then there's the, you know, the wash. The condition, alternator spray, brush, blow dry, fiber, and swoop. <laughs> the swoop. And swoop. Yeah. How about you? Yeah. Shower. Yes. Swoop. Swoop. Okay. Simpler. Simpler. Similar, but simpler. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. More serious question, though. Um, and this kind of follow-up from last week a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Is what happened to all the souls uh, who died uh, before Jesus died on the cross? Right. So we're getting into more of the serious questions This now. is a serious this question. This is a good question. Uh, and the best way I can answer this question is to actually point you back to last year. Uh, last year's episodes of Pastor 411, we specifically looked at heaven and hell. Uh, and that question was answered during week two of last year's Pastor 411. So if you want to find a detailed answer on that one, go to our website, westmeadows.org, and under the watch tab, yep. uh, media watch, you can find the um, kind of the you know, all the back episodes and uh, other sermons as well. Yeah. That can be found. Yeah. So for that's sure. where you can find an answer to that one. It's a good question. Yeah. Already covered it though. Yeah, for sure. And if you have more questions that continue to come in, as we mentioned last week, we want this to be a dialogue. And so if you're joining us online, you can type your questions in on the chat there and we'll actually try to answer them as follow-up questions as we go this morning. But if you're joining us in person, there's a QR code on the pew in front of you. And if you scan that, uh, we have our laptop here, and so we can actually see your questions come up, and we can yep. answer those as we go. Yep, we'll fit in what we can as we go. That was good last week. For sure. All right, so um, last week, uh, we ended the message talking about how the Bible was assembled. Mm-hmm. There's all these different letters and writings compiled into one authoritative compilation of 66 books right. that we know as the Bible. And so a follow-up question was, why are there so many different English translations? Yeah. And which one is the best for me to use? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And this is a common question because it can be actually quite confusing. There's actually around 50 English translations available right now. They're sort of noteworthy 
translations. And it can seem different and very confusing. And so part of the reason, there's a few reasons for this. And I have to keep in mind that the original text from which the Bible is translated was not written in English. It was in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. So translation was absolutely necessary to take place. 50 of them? Maybe not. But translation was absolutely necessary. And there's two factors that have led to so many different types of Bibles that are out there. The first one is quite straightforward. It's just the fact that the English language has just so dramatically changed over the last 400 years. Uh, for, you know, for example, the English language has changed more in 400 years than the Greek language has changed in 2,000 years. So there's a need to constantly be updating the Bible in English form in order to make it uh, more readable for people. For example, if you were to go back and get like the original King James version from like 16, uh, I think 1611 is when that came out, it would, it, for a lot of people, it would be borderline unreadable. It would have completely different language and grammar and syntax. It, it would just be very different. It would be similar to reading Shakespeare. Uh, and there's a reason they make Cole's notes or, or Spark notes for Shakespeare. It's mm -hmm. because reading the original text is very difficult for some people to be able to understand and grasp. So one reason that there's many different English translations is just the constant updating of the English language that they have to keep pace with. The second factor is, is a bigger factor, and that is that many different translations are translated through different methodologies for different purposes. And this idea of methodologies is what we refer to as equivalence. And, and there's sort of a continuum of equivalence that works. There's, there's what's referred to as formal equivalence, and on the other end of the spectrum is dynamic equivalence. Now, I'll give you a brief explanation of what this means. So formal equivalence would be a much more literal translation from the original languages to the English language that we have. It's what's referred to sometimes as a word-for-word -word translation. Now, the benefit of this is that it minimizes the, the, the translators. It minimizes the translators reading into the text as they translate, because it's just word for word, from Greek word to English, from Hebrew to English. Minimizes the interpreter's interpretation as they go. The problem is if you've ever done translation, it makes it very choppy and very awkward and, and much more difficult to read. But you get, a, you get a more literal translation. This is what you'll find in some uh, Bibles, for example, in the uh, New American Standard, uh, King James, uh, the English Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version, which is what I use in seminary. It's what they assign to us there. And so you get these more literal formal equivalents. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, we get dynamic equivalents, which is much more focused upon what is the meaning of the text, more so than the literal word-for-word -word translation. And you end up with paraphrasing sections of the original text that way. The benefit, it's very, very easy to read. The downside is it is going to be more prone to the translator saying, well, this is what I think the text means, which is a bit of a move away from the literal into more of the, what the translator thinks the text means. Now, this can be clearly seen if you, if you ever read like the Living Bible or the Message Bible. You'll get a sense of more, very, very easy to read, but more of an interpretation that takes place in the translator's process. Now, there's a misconception sometimes about these paraphrase versions that people took the NIV and then they translated from the NIV to the message type thing, but it's actually not the case. Even these paraphrase versions, more often than not, do get translated from the original text still. Like uh, Eugene Peterson, who, translated the who wrote the Message Bible, uh, he's, he's a brilliant man in languages, and he translated from the original languages into the message. He just did it through a methodology that was more of a dynamic equivalence style methodology. Now, there's a middle of the road where we go from word for word to the paraphrase. Right in the middle is what's referred to as sort of a thought for thought. 
And this gives sort of a balance between the two of, of good readability, but then it's also closer to the literal translation. And considering that middle of the road you know, per, per perspective, you can see why these are the most common translations you'll find that people use, like, like the NIV uh, and the NLT are common. So in terms of which one is best, well, in my opinion, I, I think it depends upon who you are and the purpose for which you're reading the Bible, because they're written for certain purposes, so your purpose for reading should match the reason that it was written. Um, you know, there are some people who will use one, and they will swear by that one, and that's fine. They'll avoid all others because they have their one preference, and that's okay, as long as it's, as long as it's a preference. Um, now, putting preference aside, however, when somebody comes and asks me, which Bible should I get, which Bible should I read, but before I answer them, I actually ask them some questions because I want to know more about them, where are they at on their spiritual journey, and, and what are they looking for. Uh, for example, if a young person, a child, or sometimes when a, a new believer who has like zero exposure to church and to scriptures comes and asks me, I, I'll, I'll want to choose a more readable version. And so I might point them towards like the New Living Translation. Uh, if somebody says they want, I want a solid Bible study, I'll point them more towards a word-for-word -word translation like the, like the ESV. If somebody is going to be teaching, uh, you're going to have, if you're teaching, you're going to have a room full of people from all over the place on different understandings and experiences in, in spiritual awareness. And so I want them to have a thought for thought, which will speak to a broader range, like, like the NIV. And if somebody's looking for something that's very much sort of devotional, they're not looking to a, like a real study, they just want to get the overarching story of the Bible, that's their purpose for reading, more of a devotional style. You know, there is room for things like the Message Bible for those sorts of purposes, um, and all of these come from the original language they're, and from the original manuscripts. They, they are simply just created for different purposes as we go. Uh, now for myself, when I'm doing sermon prep, I'll use, I use three versions. Uh, I'll use the ESV, uh, I'll use the NIV, and I sometimes have the message open as well. Just giving a broad perspective to see all the way along the continuum how a particular verse and passage is used in these three different areas. But when I preach, and you've been around West Middlesbrough, you know this, when I preach, I will only quote and I only put up on the screen uh, like NIV or ESV are the only ones that I put up on the screen. If I ever quote or put up on the screen something from a paraphrase translation, I'll always make a special note that it's from that translation because it will be uh, less literal uh, that we have. So uh, that can be confusing sometimes, why there are so many. Um, do we need 50? Probably not, not 50. But uh, hopefully this is, helps understand why there are so many. And you can appreciate one more thing about this. Uh, you can appreciate the fact that we have 50 versions shows the, how blessed we are to have access to the Word of God. Uh, to have access to so many versions that are out there. Uh, and if you're not familiar with all of these, you can check them all out for free. Uh, go to Bible.com. And all of these and so many more are available for free at Bible.com. Mm -hmm. That's great. And I think it's good to have a wide understanding of all those different um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, versions of the Bible. I personally tend to lean towards the NIV, okay, um, but this will be helpful, I'm sure, to, to many. Mm -hmm. Let's jump into another question, sure. a follow-up from last week. We talked about Enoch, and um, the question is, is Enoch one of the two prophets mentioned in Revelation? Right. We had a number of Enoch questions come in. There's a lot of interest about him, and this is, I think this is an interesting one to cover. So, yeah, so... I, People who might be familiar or maybe aren't familiar with this particular passage, but in Revelation 11, we read about, during the end times, how God sends two witnesses kind of during the tribulation period. And there's different ideas about who these two witnesses could be. And one of the theories is, is that Enoch is one of these two. If you want to read the whole passage for yourself, uh, maybe at home or whatnot, 
Uh, Revelation 11, verses 3 through 12 in particular, will have this. And it's these two witnesses, they, they come and they, they, they declare God's message about a three and a half year period, warning the world of God's judgment. And now through the process, some people do come to faith and some people come to hate them because of their, of their message. Also because they're, they're hated because they have this miraculous powers that accompany their messages, powers that involve the ability to bring plagues upon the world. Uh, and while people try to stop them by bringing these plagues, they find out that these guys are essentially invincible because God's protecting them. Now, after three and a half years, when their message and proclamations are finished, God does allow the Antichrist to kill these two prophets, and then the people rejoice for three days that they have been killed, and their bodies lay in the street, and people rejoice that, yay, they're dead, the plagues are over, but then they resurrect, <laughs> and, uh, and they ascend into heaven. So that, that's sort of the story we find in Revelation 11. Now, nowhere are we told specifically who they are, though. We're sort of told what they do and their purpose, but we're never specifically told who they are. And so there's speculation about three theories that I'll go through very, very briefly. Three theories about this. Number one is that uh, the pair could be Moses and Elijah, is, is one common idea. And the reason for this is if you read that passage, Revelation 11, you'll see that they have the ability to do some miracles that are similar to the miracles Moses and Elijah did. For example, turning water into blood and being able to, uh, you know, to defeat their enemies with fire. Those are things associated with those two prophets. Uh, also, uh, at the transfiguration with Jesus, these are the two prophets that were with Jesus at that time, and they're also considered the greatest prophet of the law and one of the greatest major prophets, and so people think maybe it's, it's them. Uh, a second option is that it is Enoch and Elijah instead of Moses, just swapping Enoch there instead. Uh, and the reason being is that from reading the scripture, it appears that these are the two guys who are taken directly to heaven without dying, and so they're uniquely gifted. They're uniquely qualified to then, therefore, return. Um, and there are also two prophets who are associated with bringing messages that pronounce God's judgment. And so kind of who they are and what they talked about would fit the purpose that we find in Revelation. Uh, but then the third option is we, we just don't know. It could be anybody. You know, scripture is simply vague about their identities. And there's nothing that requires them to be famous people from, from, um, from the past. It, you know, God can empower whoever he wants to do this. So it could be anybody. We, we really don't know. Um, so could it be Enoch? Maybe. It's plausible. It's a, it's a theory. There's a case for other people as well, though. Uh, the Bible doesn't say, and, and that's okay. Uh, these are good things to talk about, but we don't want to be restrictive yeah. about these things. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's go to another question. Yeah. Kind of rapid fire. This is good. Mm -hmm. um, this is a question that I kind of personally enjoy, and that is, do people still receive prophetic dreams and visions from God? Right. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. The answer is yes. I think I easy. Next I think question. A strong case. Yeah, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think there's strong reason to believe that uh, that people do. Uh, it, you know, partially because if you know if God wishes to deliver a message, they use whatever whatever means He wants. He can use the Bible. Uh, he can use angels. He can use pastors, missionaries, and I think He can give dreams and visions to people as well. The, the distinction between dreams and visions here. You know, dreams are a message from God while you're sleeping, and visions are a message from God while you're awake. So if you're ever wondering the distinction, it's really the state of consciousness that you're in is the, uh, is the distinction there. And as we know, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the Bible records many, many times when this has taken place. And I think it still happens. I, I hear stories of it still happening today. But while it happens, we don't want to ever treat it like sort of a commonplace. Like this isn't something that should be really common. We need to be discerning when somebody says they've received a dream or a vision to you know, kind of discern the accuracy 
and the uh, authenticity of that, make sure it wasn't just you know, some burritos made or something like that. Um, but Zach, I think you've had some experience with burritos. No, with I mean, visions. I'm sorry. Visions. <laughs> yeah, with dreams. Uh, certainly God dreams. is, yeah. that's one of the ways that God has uh, spoken to me over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I won't go into detail for today. I'm certainly happy to share that with anyone after the service if you'd like. Yeah. Um, but for today, I'll just say, yeah, it's not something that's a biblical concept. It's it's something that happens now, and I've experienced that for you sure. Experience of those, yeah. You know, and there and there is some prophecy about this. The uh, prophet Joel, who is also then Joel, was quoted by Peter in Acts two on the day of Pentecost, talked about this in a passage that um, that is believed to be partially fulfilled at the time of Peter quoting it, but not fully fulfilled until the return of Christ. And and we find this in Acts two. Excuse me, Acts 2.17, where it says, in the last days, and those last days meaning kind of from the church age until the return of Christ, um, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and old men will dream dreams. And so it's thought that this is something that still happens today. And, um, and I think God does do that. I think he tends to use this more often, however, in areas of the world that are closed to the gospel mm-hmm. and closed to, to the Bibles, where Bibles aren't available yet. Um, and we can see there's actually a pattern that's used in these sorts of situations. And it's a common model we actually find in, in Acts 10 that exists within Acts 10, within the Bible, but we can actually find uh, in today's world a bit. And if you want to read through Acts 10, that's one of the uh, questions that's part of our Beyond the Message small groups this week. We'll be diving into this a little bit further in our small groups this week. But even proven through people's own lives, we can see this, this model, not just in the Bible, but in the real world. And it kind of follows these four steps where, where number one, Jesus appears to a person. Um, quite often in a closed uh, Muslim country, you'll hear stories of a man in white appearing to people in dreams, in mm-hmm. visions, and, and that man in white is, is Jesus. And so the first thing will happen is Jesus appears to a person, then number two, he will tell them to go find or to speak to a person at a certain place at a certain time. Uh, and then three, when they follow those instructions, they, they find the person in the place exactly as they were told. Um, and then that individual who they've gone to meet shares the good news of Jesus with them, and, and the person believes, and they come to faith in him. So sort of the four-step process. And there's all sorts of stories we find in closed countries, people from closed countries or missionaries who have worked in closed countries about this model taking place. There's just one really brief story uh, that I came across a little while ago. It was about a missionary who was you know, ministering overseas, and his car broke down. While he's waiting for somebody to come help him, uh, a man just comes walking down the street, walks up to him, and his greeting to this missionary is, are you the messenger of God? <laughs> and the missionary is a little surprised. No, he's a missionary, so he's not totally surprised, but a little surprised by this initial encounter. And he comes to learn that this man who came walking down the street had had a vision or a dream, whatever the case may have been. And in that dream, he was told to go to find a man at a place and a time and ask him if he was God's messenger. And so the guy says yes, and they return back to the village where this missionary proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ, and the whole village comes to faith. So, so things like this happen in, in today's world, especially in closed countries. Um, and if you talk to missionaries or people who come from some of these closed regions, there's, more often than not, they'll have stories about a man in white or about, a, about visions that have led people to faith. Um, so I think it's pretty, it's pretty cool when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, you know, this is the first Sunday of May. Yep. Right. Um, so as we kind of transition, as we do on the first Sunday of the month, we mm-hmm. receive communion. 
And so we should move towards that. Yeah, are there any questions coming in today? Yeah. Uh, nothing today. Quiet. Very, covering it really well today. I know. I guess there's yeah. no questions. Okay. That's all right. All right. Um, so let's move on to communion. Yeah, let's talk about that. There's a yeah. question about that, hey? Yeah, that question was, is, what is the meaning behind the elements of communion? We do it every month. Yeah. What's that about? Yeah. So, um, yeah, for this one, it's going to take a few minutes to explain, I think, uh, which is worthwhile because we're going to be participating in communion today. But also, I think there's a great depth to this um, question, too. So we'll take a couple extra minutes with this one. Mm-hmm. Um, you can feel free to send questions in still, and we'll, we can grab them as we go, or we can grab them next week as we go through this. Yeah. But... Um, let me explain this one. Um, now, many people here, I'm going to guess, are familiar with the practice of taking communion. And if somebody were to ask you to explain communion to them, I, I'm pretty sure a lot of people here would be able to give an answer to that. And it probably something along the lines of, it's an opportunity for followers of Jesus to remember and to celebrate his sacrifice upon the cross. So, that's true. That, that's absolutely true, and that, that's a fine answer. But I want to take some time to go a little bit deeper in that. Because I think there's a deeper understanding of this, of this ordinance. A deeper understanding of this practice that shows just the sacred nature of what actually is taking place in communion. So we want to push into that a bit more here this morning. Yeah, we're actually going to practice it together. Yeah. Um, so if you are joining us here in person, you haven't yet received one of these communion cups, you can just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will be happy to give you one. Or if you're joining us online and you haven't grabbed uh, something to participate in communion, something to eat and drink, uh, do so now. Yeah, okay. So uh, another name for communion is uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, And that's very fitting because it it starts on the evening in which he was arrested and which he would be tried and eventually would lead to his death. And on that evening, Jesus and his followers, they gathered in the upper room to gather to celebrate the Passover feast. And we read this in, in Matthew uh, 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 17, where it says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, this Passover feast they are gathering for, for 1,500 years, the, the people of Israel had come together to do this on an annual basis at the time of Passover to have a look back to look back and to remember God's faithfulness to the people, to the nation. And it centered around the single greatest moment in their history, uh, when they, the exodus out of slavery for the nation of Israel. And over the course of the Passover meal, they, they, would, they would retell the story about how they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Now, now, 400 years is hard to get our head around sometimes, but 400 years is essentially two and a half times longer than Canada has even been a nation, that these people were in slavery for 400 years. And then God rose up a man named Moses, who would become his instrument of liberation. And, and we kind of familiar with the story, or at least the you know, Charlton Heston movie, where, where Moses marches into Pharaoh's court and, and on behalf of God says, let my people go. But, but Pharaoh has a hard-hearted nature about it and says no and he will not release them and so God allows Moses and directs Moses to bring plagues upon the nation of Egypt to 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 try to persuade and motivate Pharaoh towards releasing the people but he is unmoved to do so until they get to the last plague and the last plague was the uh, was the plague of the firstborn where the angel of God would go throughout the nation of Israel uh, throughout the nation of Egypt and the firstborn of every woman and of all, the, of all the livestock would be killed that night. 
But God told his people ahead of time through, through Moses to go and to sacrifice a lamb. And as they sacrificed that lamb, to take the blood of the lamb and to put it around the doorposts of their homes. And then to cook the lamb. And to gather in the household that night, within the home with the blood upon the doorposts, and gather together as a family, they were to eat that, that cooked lamb that they had sacrificed. And that night when God's judgment came throughout, throughout Egypt, they would pass over the houses who had blood upon the doorposts. And the people within that house would live. And by doing this, God was setting his people free. And sure enough, the next day, Pharaoh relents and he allows Israel to leave slavery and to leave Egypt and to take those strides towards the promised land in which they would one day settle and God would establish his nation. In doing so, God was setting his people free and every year they would come together and they would remember how God had delivered them. And and a Passover meal that they celebrated to remember these things was a very structured time of celebration. It, It walks through a series of eating and drinking attached to to certain promises of God that they would read. And these promises are found in, in Exodus 6, verses 6 through 7. And uh, Zach, maybe you want to read that passage for us, where we find these promises that they would focus upon during Passover. For sure. It says, Therefore, say to their Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with, um, with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. And I will be your God. Yeah. So there's four promises in this passage that would, that would create a, a structure for this meal. The promise, God says to them, I will bring you out. God says, I will free you. God says, I will redeem you. And then I will make you my people. And at the Last Supper, the disciples are gathered with Jesus going through the series of this, of this liturgical meal. Looking back at what God did. But what they didn't know is that God was about to do it again. He was about to do it again in Jesus Christ. God was about to again bring the people out. He was again about to bring them to freedom from slavery to sin. He was again about to redeem them, and he was again about to make them his people. And as Jesus told this very familiar story that all the people in the room would have known, he begins to connect himself to the story. You see, when they got to the third promise... At that part of the meal, the, the leader of the meal would, would grab a pizza, matzo bread, the, the unleavened bread. He would take the bread and he would break it. And then he would distribute it to be eaten. And it's at this part during the Last Supper, during this third promise of redemption, where the bread is broken and distributed. We see this in Matthew 26, 26. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And then he gave it to the disciples And connecting himself to it, he said, take and eat, for this is my body. And in doing this, what Jesus was saying, he was saying to the disciples that night, he's saying, God promised that he would bring your people out. God promised he would set your people free, that he would redeem them, that he would make them his. He was faithful to do it in the past, and he's doing it again. He's doing it in me and through me, Jesus was saying. He was saying, I am that lamb who was sacrificed that you're remembering. He was saying, I see the brokenness within you and I want to be broken for you. He was saying that by my blood, the judgment of God will pass over you and you can experience new life with me. It says, look back 
upon the four promises of God. As God says, I will bring you out, I will free you, I will redeem you, and I will make you mine. And that's what we reflect upon when we look at the bread. When we look at the bread that we participate in during communion, it calls us to look back. It calls us to look back into our own stories. To reflect upon what Jesus brought us out of. What did Jesus set you free from? And how he redeemed you with his life. And so we're going to partake of the bread here in just a moment. But I want to invite you first to reflect upon those very things. Just reflect upon them for a moment. And then we will take the bread together. We read in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said to his disciples, as he says to us, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the bread is a look back. And what I just shared with us is probably not completely new to everybody, but probably some added depth that perhaps you hadn't known or reflected upon before. And, but what Jesus did next actually broke with the tradition from that point on. It, it broke with the Passover liturgy as he turned from the bread now and turned to the cup. And, and this would have been surprising for the disciples who are gathered there. And we read this in verse 27 and 28. It says, Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now this would have confused the disciples. You see, they're very familiar with the Passover liturgy, with, with the way that the meal unfolded, with the, with the sayings and the promises and the patterns that would happen. And, uh, but Jesus was no longer looking back anymore. 
And to looking to the cup now, he begins to look forward. You see, the actions and the words that are shared in verse 27 and 28, are these, the, the words and the actions that are shared here is Jewish wedding language. You see, in our culture, when we propose to somebody, you know, a groom will go buy a ring and, and he'll get down on one knee and he'll, he'll ask a young lady to marry him. But in Jewish customs, when a suitor finds a woman he wants to marry, he'll find an opportunity by which he can pour wine into a glass. And he will then set the wine in front of her. And that's a proposal. And she's not obligated to drink from it. But if she chooses to pick up the goblet and drink from it, it symbolizes her acceptance of the proposal that the groom has just made. And once she has accepted that proposal, the groom then goes off and has two things to do. He has to, number one, go raise the bride price. And the more precious the bride, the more costly the price is. Because the price needs to be paid to the father before he can claim the bride as his own. And the second thing that he does is he goes off to prepare a place where they will live together. A place where they will dwell together in their married life. And as Jesus places the cup of wine now before the disciples and says, drink it. And they do. And we do. We're accepting his offer. And as they accept his offer, he then begins to explain the price that he will pay, the the bride price that he will pay that will cost him very dearly because his bride is so precious, it will cost him his very life. But it's a price that he's willing to pay in order to receive his bride. It's a price he's willing to pay in order to, to redeem all of those who will become the church, the bride of Christ. And after he then talks about the price it will cost the groom, he then begins to speak of the second responsibility. And read with us in John 14, where he then says to his disciples, he says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will surely come back and I will take you to be with me that you will also be where I am. And so as their meal begins to end, Jesus has not just led the disciples in looking back to remember God's promises, to set them free and to redeem them, to make them his people. He also points them to look forward with anticipation. And so as we turn and look at the cup, the symbol of Jesus' blood that was shed for us, the price that cost him his life, we too can look back. And we can be thankful that he was willing to pay the price to make his precious bride, us, the church, his own. But we can also look forward. We can look forward remembering that if we have accepted that proposal that he gave to us, that he has gone on to prepare a place for us, that he has paid the price, that he has ransomed us, and that there is a place being prepared where we too will dwell with him eternally. So I want to give you a moment now to reflect upon that. And then we'll come back and we'll drink of this proposal together.
As we continue reading the words of Paul, as he reflects upon what was passed on to him from the words of Jesus, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us remember it together. I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we gather together today to remember your sacrifice. Oh Lord, we are, we are moved as we look back and think of your promises and your faithfulness to us in the face of times when we are not faithful to you, Lord, and yet your steadfast love, your steadfast nature to stand by the promises you made us, gives us a solid foundation upon which we can stand. Lord, we thank you that what you did at the time of Jesus, as he was proclaiming to those followers that he would bring freedom, he would set them free, that we now, the church, would be his people. We thank you for the sacrifice that made that all possible, that he would be broken for us. But then, Lord, we don't just just have a look back and have a memory that brings us to a solemn moment. Lord, may we also have a heart that doesn't just remember, but that celebrates. Celebrates in anticipation. The good news that Jesus Christ is not just the crucified Savior. He is the risen Savior. By his blood, we can be identified in his resurrection and in his purity and know that the day will come when we will dwell with him in eternity. Lord, may our hearts be filled with thankfulness and anticipation of that day. May that compel us and motivate us to go into this world and to tell the world that the fulfillment of this life and the life to come is not found within us and within the things that we can accomplish here and now, but it is found through Christ alone, that not by us, but through Christ in us, we find our hope and our joy and our blessing and anticipation of the days ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name.